get around to shake everyone's hand. I'm feeling a bit sick today. Um, so we'll, we'll suffer through this together. How about that? <laughs> Hopefully my voice lasts. I think it will. Um, we'll find out. Um, anyway, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 9. And we're going to go over verses 1 through 17 today. And, yeah, I'm not going to read them um, over our first, but we will read them together in a second. So, as you remember, chapter 8, the flood, um, we're going through the flood narrative right now with Noah. And in chapter 8, the flood finally subsides. And so Noah and his family, after being on the ark for well over a year, um, a year and a few months actually, they're finally able to come out onto dry land again. They're able to see again green They're able to see earth. They're able to see um, this new world that God has brought about, even though this destruction has just happened. Um, And so now we're going to come into what God does. Because the question is, um, as we'll find, what is God's plan for these people? What is God's plan for these animals? So, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the third time God has told uh, to have blessed humanity. The first time was in Genesis 1.28, and the second time was a reflection upon that in Genesis 5.2. Now, after the deluge, um, Noah and his sons are blessed in the same way as Adam and Eve were from the beginning, and may remind us of the new creation motif found once the flood subsides. Again, we also want to take special notice of the fact that God does not command them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Instead, it says God blessed them. Thus, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, these are blessings from God. Now, verses 2 through 4. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. As with Genesis 1, we also see how humanity is given authority over the created order. However, it should be noted the difference in the terminology. Whereas previously it seemed more of a gentle authority, now it is recognized that the animal kingdom will fear and dread humanity. Part of this may be a reflection of the fact that because of the fall of humanity, um, it had plunged the world into darkness, in which case even the animals have a negative experience because of it, as we just saw with the flood, which is something even the prophets declare, as we noticed in Joel and Amos as well. Um, Ultimately, though, all animals are subject to humans. Whether those are on the land, sea, or the air, all fall under the dominion of humanity. The final phrase of, into your hands they are delivered, implies that humanity has judgment over them, uh, whether to live or to die. Again, a complete and total dominance over the animal kingdom. At this point, we continue to see a common trend uh, that goes back to Genesis 1, 28 through 29. But there is a slight difference. Whereas in the previous case, humanity was given the vegetation, here they are allowed to eat also every living thing. Whether or not this considers the unclean and clean animals found in the food laws is unknown. Some argue the lack of designation implies Noah was allowed to eat any animal, 
whereas others note the continued emphasis of clean and unclean animals found throughout the flood narrative implies that he was only to eat the clean foods. Likewise, there is verse 4 which prohibits eating flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Throughout the Old Testament, blood was considered to be a testimony to life itself. If one had flowing blood, then one was naturally alive. When we consider further in the law how the blood was given by God on behalf of propitiation and sacrifice for human sin, we further see how blood can be understood as a means of recognizing life. For if sin leads to death, then that which takes away sin reflects that which is life, and in this case of the law, that is blood. Ultimately, though, the blood is a prohibition given to Noah. While they are allowed to eat animals, they are not permitted to eat that which is still pulsing with blood. And as we find in the law later on, they are not allowed to eat any animal with any blood still with them. Alrighty, verse 5. Um, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. At this point, there's a turning of perspective. It goes from the animals and its lifeblood to humanity. Again, we see how blood and life are tied together in the text. When it comes from humans being killed, either by animals or by humans, there will be a reckoning. This is seen in the law especially as those who murder other humans face the death penalty. The same is true of an ox which gores a man. The ox must be put to death. As such, this is the beginning of the law of lex talionis. Um, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood, a life for life. It is interesting as well to consider how it says, from his fellow human I will require a reckoning for the life of man. This kind of terminology is similar to brotherhood or family. Ultimately, God does not see different races as we do today. Instead, he sees the entirety of the human race as one family, one race. Yet the question is, why does humanity have such a high status? Why is it that animals' blood can be shed but not eaten, whereas a human's blood cannot even be shed at all? The answer lies in the final statement. For God made man in his own image. The image of God is placed upon all humanity, regardless of their race or status, and because of this, humanity has dignity, sanctity, and worth. This leads to the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. Again, humanity is blessed to be able to go out over the earth to swarm and multiply over it. In this, we hear the echo of the cultural mandate found in chapter 1, to rule and subdue. It is expressed here in a similar sentiment. Alrighty, verses 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. We now come upon three speeches given by God to humanity and all flesh on the earth. It begins with, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Um, this covenant is between God and all those who were on the ark. He is the one who will maintain the covenant, 
the continued expression given in verses 9 through 10 is to recognize God is doing this for all mentioned, which is all humans and land animals especially. We notice that the covenant does not end with Noah and his immediate family, but all humanity henceforth. God then specifically states that it is he which establishes this covenant. This way of speaking is similar to a legal agreement which has been ratified. The fact that God has established implies that the covenant is already a done deal. There is nothing which can change it. But the question is, what is the covenant? The answer is that God will never again destroy all flesh by means of a flood. We notice that this does not mean that God will not destroy flesh in some other way or by some other means. Instead, it recognizes God's covenant to all creatures of flesh to never again destroy all flesh and all the earth as he has just done with a flood. As such, Noah and his offspring can in peace seek the blessing of God to procreate and have generation upon generation. Now verses 12 and continued. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and to you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So the second speech details the sign of the covenant. Um, Again, we find the encouragement of the flood narrative convincing. God has said that this covenant is not only for one or two, but for all future generations of both humanity and all living creatures. What is the sign? A bow. It is interesting to know how some scholars believe that this is a rainbow, while others believe it is a sign of an actual bow and arrow. If it is the latter, it implies God putting away his weapon against the earth. Uh, but we can easily see how this can be the case with a rainbow as well. Um, likewise, there is speculation whether or not a rainbow had occurred even prior to this moment, but that is speculation at best. It can be just as likely that the rainbow had occurred, but only at this point it is engraved with the sacred meaning that God will not destroy the world via a flood. At this point, God is remembered um, of the covenant. This is the second time in the flood narrative that God is said to have remembered something or will remember. In both cases, it brings the idea of redemption, either in the sense of Noah being remembered or God remembering the covenant and thus will not destroy the world via a flood. The last statement of the rainbow as a covenant sign is that it is an eternal sign. That is, as the text says, an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. As such, we are reminded of God's promise when we see the rainbow um, and can trust in his ability to keep his own covenants, which he has established with us. Now the final verse, verse 17. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and that and all flesh that is on the earth. The final speech is simply meant to emphasize the situation. God has established a covenant not only with humanity but all flesh. As such, we can have hope again in God's eternal covenant with all flesh on the earth, which includes us, and trust in him to fulfill his promises and his word to us when we see the sign as well. All right, so the main point of these verses, they're to reestablish the human race. 
The verses mirror those found in Genesis 1 and 2, looking back on the original creation to this recreation of the world. Along with the reestablishment of the created order, we also see anew the blessings given from Genesis 1 and 2, as well as an added laws concerning eating meat and the judgment against murder. Finally, the covenant is made between God and all flesh that God will not destroy the earth again through a flood with a bow placed in the skies, a reminder to the covenant which God has established between him and all flesh. <clears throat> all right, so we all good so far? <laughs> I don't know, I'm dying, um, but we got it. So, applications. Last we saw how God restored the land. Despite the tumultuous flood which rose up over the land and overtook it, in the end, by God's divine command, the destructive waters receded and the earth was brought back to its normal state. At the end of the last chapter, remember, God promised as much to himself that the times and the seasons uh, would persist as long as the earth remained. The question which loomed now, however, deals with those who were on the ark, as I mentioned previously. What is God's plan now? Will he inhibit humanity because of their sinfulness? Will he cause them to decrease in numbers, never to scatter? Will he allow them to have dominion, knowing all too well the evil and corruption which humanity can and will and has caused? The answer to these questions are answered by God himself as he has these three speeches. In each of them, he makes it known his plan and purpose for humanity. It is not that humanity will now become diminished, but instead humanity will continue on as God's image bearers on the earth. They will continue to have dominion, and they will spread and be blessed with offspring just as God had originally intended. Thus what God does is bring restoration after the destruction. Humanity through Noah will continue. His sons are blessed to continue to have children and have generation upon generation. God allows this, knowing again all too well that humanity from early on is still evil at heart, as we learned him uh, considering to himself. Simply put, even though this has all occurred, God knows humanity will continue to fall into sin. Yet in these verses, we see what we often hear every week. Despite the fall, despite the fact that our propensity is towards sin and disobedience, we are still created in the image of God. Despite the fall, we are created in the image of God, and that means we have sanctity, dignity, and worth despite our fallen natures. So it is, God in these verses blesses us with life, with continued life through generations, and then commands us to respect life by not murdering. Even with the animals, we are to respect life by not eating uh, them with their lifeblood. As such, we are reminded then to respect the life of others as well as to respect the life God has given to us. God as well promises to do the same thing. He will not destroy the world as he has once did. Instead, he will continue to preserve life by not destroying it in judgment as he just did. Thus, in all this, we learn something rather interesting about God himself. He is not only the God of death and the God of destruction and judgment, He is also the God of life. He is the God who brings forth the rains and the floods, but he is also the one who preserves life and blesses it in perseverance. So it should be no surprise to us that God expects us to act in the same way. He teaches us that life is sacred in this text and that especially human life is worth something. 
Here we are given a moral command about murder, which translates into us than having grounding for morality itself. For morality is not grounded in ourselves, but grounded in the very person of God. So when he gives us a moral command, it reflects his own morality. Why do we not murder? Because murder is immoral. Why is it immoral? Because God has given us the moral command not to murder. Those who do murder must face the consequences for their actions. But then the question arises, why the heavy price? If humans are able to eat meat um, from animals, how come there are no repercussions for animal slaying? Well, the answer in the text is in the text itself. While animals are loved by God, they are not created in his image. Humanity has a special place in creation because of our status as image bearers of God. This is in stark contrast with those who we hear today. There are many who tell us we are nothing more than animals. We are descendants of a amoeba, unguided, here by accident, by chance, and nothing more. If this is the case, then there is no worth to human life. If this is the case, then murder, robbery, lying, cheating, stealing, they all mean nothing. Because ultimately there is no moral lawgiver, no moral code or standard, no morality itself. Instead, every time we act, regardless of the act, we are merely acting according to our genetic makeup, and therefore every act is good or right. Thus, as one atheist philosopher even put it, the only responsibility of the human is to act at all. To not act would be the real atrocity. As it is, we know all too well that this is not the case. We know this isn't the case because when we hear of school shootings and we hear of murder and we hear of evil committed against other humans, whether it be rape or murder or home invasions or abuse, we all instinctually know that this is not right. It is not good. It is not okay. When the world tells us we're nothing more than animals, then animals we will become. And what's worse, there is nothing moral about a cat acting like a cat and catching a mouse. Neither would there be anything moral about the atrocities against humans we see if we are merely products of a blind evolutionary chain. But as it is, we know that this is not the case. As it is, we know that morality exists because God exists. We know that these are wrong because there is a God who, by his own character, gives us the commands which reflect his character. To simply murder is evil. It goes against what God has decreed concerning life, and it deserves retribution. Every human has the image of God on them. Thus, the command from God to not murder is one which is placed upon every human individual, because every human has the image on them again. But even further, it reminds us that every human person is ultimately part of the same human race. Thus, to murder another human is akin to murdering your own family because in the end, we are all connected by this divine image. We are all connected to our heritage as human beings created by God and descendants of Noah and Adam. It is our responsibility then as believers in God and those who know our status in the image of God, as image bearers of God, to stand firm against the teachings of lesser philosophies, which would tell us otherwise. 
It is our responsibility to remind each other and the world around us that we are not a process of blind chance, but are image bearers of God on high. We are image bearers of a God who is a moral God, and as such, morality exists. And each human life has worth in and of itself because it automatically bears the image of God at conception onward. So it is from this text we learn a great many things about our God and ourselves. We are reminded of the restoration that God brings and how this restoration is merely a prelude to the greater restoration to come. Likewise, it reminds us of our moral duties, how God is a moral God who gives us moral commands which we are expected to obey. If we do not obey them and we are not obedient in them, then there are repercussions. Finally, there is life. The gift of life is given by God himself to each of us. We each have a responsibility to then preserve life, not only our own, but also those around us. We are not to be callous, treating other humans as animals, but treating them as image bearers of God, worthy of life. All of these things hinge on the promise of God. For God will repay the unrepentant murderer, and he will bless us with life. It is his promise to us to do these things which gives us our foundations. It is his restoration of the world which allows life to exist at all. Thus, it all comes back to God. His restoration he provides, the promises he bestows, the life he gives. Praise God for these things. And praise God that all these things are again a prelude to the restoration, to the promise and the life which he gives through Jesus. And again, all of this ties into the gospel, the restoration which happens, the fact that in the end there was judgment that came upon humanity. Now, Genesis 1 through 12, (laughs) maybe it's 11, Some of the hardest verses to go on. Um, And the reason why is because it deals with so many of the things that we see all the time, even in our own lives. And we wonder, how on earth, how on earth could humanity, for as long as humanity existed, continue in this state of decay? How can it be that we've received so many judgments against God, and yet we continue to persevere in our sin, in our darkness? And it makes you wonder, how gracious is our God? How gracious is our God? Because even though humanity deserved to be completely wiped out with the flood, he didn't do it. He preserved. He persevered. And so when it comes to the gospel, we start with our origins, and ultimately we all start with Adam and Eve, but we also go back to Noah. And we're all descendants of Noah in some capacity. And so it is, the promises bestowed upon Noah are promises bestowed upon you. The blessings bestowed upon Noah and his family are to you. Um, The promise that God will not destroy the earth again is a promise he made to you. Because you are Noah's descendants. We all are. And so we see the origins, and we are reminded, too, of the fact that we are all created in the image of God, and therefore murder is not acceptable. Um, But that also means something for you. 
that you have worth, that you have sanctity to life, that you have dignity. But again, we have the problem with the fall. I mean, right away, in this new created order, God has to give a command not to murder because he expects us to do it. Because he remembers Cain and Abel. He remembers the first sons and how Cain murdered Abel. Well, this time, God's going to put a little bit of a limit on that, isn't he? He's going to put a judgment on it. You will not murder each other. Why? Because the image of God is on each of you. Because his image is too important. The life that he bestows is the life that he gives. And we have no right to take it. But that's the problem. God wouldn't have to put a command on this if we were good. (laughs) You don't tell your children, don't touch the stove, you know, if they're not going to ever touch the stove. You tell them that because you're likely going to have them touching the stove at one point. Um, You also have to teach your children not to lie. Why? Because eventually they're going to lie. (laughs) The same thing with God. Do not murder because I expect you to murder. Um, It says something about humanity again. It says something about our fallenness. It says something about the fact that we are sinful by definition. um, That we have been tainted by this sin. That we ever slowly more gravitate closer and closer toward it rather than God. So the question remains, what then can we do? If this is our state, and if this has been the state of humanity for generations upon generations upon generations, since Noah, since Adam and Eve, to gravitate towards sin, where can our redemption be found? Can the worth that we have in the image of God be renewed? Can God take the restoration that he made on the planet and make a restoration with us too. Yes, he can. And he did it through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he lived, he died, he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. His lifeblood was poured for you. So that ultimately, you would have life eternal. So that ultimately, the image which is in each of us would shine again. Being repolished, being made renewed, being restored to its proper place. And it's all because of what Jesus did. Take that weight off your shoulder now. It's not on you. Christ did it. Christ has accomplished. The same way God held the ark aloft, in the same way that God shut that door and made sure that no no water would get into the ark and that ultimately the ark would persist, so God is the one who saves us today through Christ. Redemption, restoration. We see it in Noah. We see it in our own lives. And where does that lead? It leads to glorification. Just as Noah and all the people with him and all the animals stepped out onto the, off of the ark and they came across this new world and they were amazed at what they saw. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being on a boat for a year, not seeing any dry land, and then all of a sudden being able to step back on the earth again. What would you think? How would you feel? That's what it's going to be like except a billion times better. 
when finally we get to see God face to face and we enter into the kingdom of God. It'll be like walking for the first time. It'll be like seeing for the first time, hearing for the first time. We're getting there. We're not there yet. We still get sick. We still struggle with sin. We still fail. But we also know that God made other promises to us too. He didn't just promise not to flood the earth. He promised to sustain us if we have faith in Jesus. His promises are sure. So continue having faith in him and know that in the end, God will persist and he will bring us to the kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the covenant that you made with Noah, that through that covenant, here we are today, reminded of the story, reminded of our own place, reminded of the fact that just as you once brought judgment, you also brought redemption. Just as you once brought death, you also brought life, and that ultimately that was just a prelude of the eternal life that you are going to provide through your son, Jesus. So, Lord, as we continue on today and as we remember um, what you have done, we ask that your glory would be revealed and that we would remember that all those who have faith in you will never taste death eternal, but instead will only know of life. We thank you and for all that you have done and for all that you will continue to do because you have promised us this. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we